Hello and welcome to Cartel Aristocrats cast number 77. As always, we'd like to thank our sponsors, CoolStuffInc.com and GatheringMagic.com, the number one store for all of your Magic the Gathering needs. With a sweet 25% buy list bonus and free shipping on orders over $100. We recommend stopping by CoolStuffInc.com to pick up any cool local hot singles in your area. Leak is always what? with no time, time out. Time out. <laughs> what the hell did you just say? <laughs> well, you've never, gone into a, you've never gone into a card shop to pick up hot single magic cards? Yeah, but I wouldn't order them online to pick them up in another shop. That doesn't make any sense. That just, all the time, really, no, he just did a really like he took a joke and then he's like, oh man, it doesn't really fit here. Nah, man, I'm just gonna jam it. <laughs> Nobody notices. No, I'm calling you out. That was bad. You should feel bad. Don't do that again. As always, I'm joined by my curmudgeon co-host Jim Casali of Modern. I'm not curmudgeon either. Now you're just making you just making stuff up. And of course, Travis Allen is not available this week, and Ed is currently in Korea or China, so we won't see him until next week. But we do have a, fe- a special guest this week. Um, finally, taking a, a breath from things, as we'll sort of get into it, we'd like to welcome Paul Fudo to the cast. He's been on before. Hi, everybody. Notice my beautiful picture if you're seeing it on YouTube. Yes, Paul has the finest uh, profile pictures out of any Magic the Gathering uh, finance guy. So, Paul, we've had you on before. Uh, Last time you went very much into the details of how to run a booth, uh, some of the challenges with running a booth, and some fun stuff like that. But we never really asked you about your background story. Uh, especially with um, uh, your story sort of uh, coming to a conclusion, I guess you could say that it, it's it's all these years, and uh, we'll get to like what's going on. But it's super interesting to see this uh, this sort of transition after uh, you essentially entered the infinite earlier in your uh, in your youth. Uh, How did you get started in magic and magic finance uh, specifically? That was a really rough pun. Um... I, uh, I played Magic when I was younger, like we all, or most of us probably did. I was playing FNM in like sixth grade and was very, very bad, what have you. I uh, graduated high school, went to college for a while, and it wasn't until I think my first Magic event after like five years was like the Merit and Deceits pre-release, and I ended up getting some buys for a local GP like within like a year later, maybe a year and a half. And then traveled down, I think it was GP San Diego for that block format when Kibler broke it with the Jun deck with Falconrath Aristocrats. It was an Innistrad block. And I started out 6 0 and then flamed up the last three rounds of not day two and decided that playing sucked and I didn't want to play anymore. And started looking at buy lists and started doing some math. And my first day doing what was essentially backpack dealing was day two of GP I scrubbed out on. Networked and started writing articles. I wrote for Legit MTG for within like six months of that. And worked for Medina when he was just starting out, and eventually wrote some for Quiet Spec. Wrote one awkward article for Brainstorm Brewery that got a card to get bought out in like an hour, and that was not great. Um, and then got hired by MTG Deals. Stopped writing and hit the GP circuit really hard. Um, that's that's the gist of it. And you definitely became a friendly face to see at pretty much every Grand Prix uh, you attended. 
how long were you traveling on the road, living the dream, I guess you could say, of buying magic cards in convention centers across the country? Oh, time out. Whose dream is that? Because they need some better dreams or something. I don't well, know. We will never... get to that, Jim. I've never heard of anyone the dream like that. We will get to that. Paul? Grass is always greener, Jim, so depending on where you are. Um, I started out, I was I was doing contract work for deals at the beginning of 2014 and got hired on full-time and moved down to L.A. in May. And I did travel work really hard for about a year and a half while I was doing the pricing. And then eventually our staff dictated that it made more sense for me to just be home doing pricing all the time and working on arbitrage math and things like that. So I essentially went from being a, a road monkey to a spreadsheet monkey, which in my opinion was an upgrade because traveling sucks. And so I, about a year and a half, I was on the road real hard. And then after that, I was doing all of the prep for everyone who was on the road after for, I guess the next year and a half. And um, do you do you miss the road at all? I mean, I know you said that you you hated it and that it was an upgrade to stay at home. But were, were there any fun memories of uh, traveling around the country at all, or was it just absolutely miserable the entire time? I mean, there are definitely fun memories. You build a bond and you like meet. You see the same people. Like vendors are friends. Like it's not like everyone's just like horrible, horrible enemies or any type of like weird rivalry that people want to make it out to be like you see these same people you do business with the same people you go out to eat with the same people like that yeah of course there's things you miss you know once every couple months doing a gp is just fine because it's kind of like it's kind of like stretching your muscles a little bit and that you uh you get to see the other side get you more in touch with the player base again because that's something that's difficult when you're working from home all the time is you just aren't in touch with the actual opinions of what's going on so yeah absolutely and even now like doing a gp every couple months like i think i did I did Vegas this year, and that was different because Vegas, Vegas was a lot of work. But yeah, absolutely, it's definitely it's more that I've become more curmudgeonly about it just because the travel wears on you so much. But if you could teleport to GPs, yeah, GPs would be great. And um, what is what's your strategy going forward with uh, MTG Finance? If you want to discuss uh, the position you're in and uh, how being an adult pays off in this situation, I guess you could say. I mean, it's more like I, so for, for the skinny, I, uh, I stopped working for deals, I guess like eight or nine days ago and I don't really know what I'm doing, but I saved money like an adult. So I have flexibility and that's the biggest thing, especially in these super grindy jobs, like start saving money if you can, so that when you're over it, you can just be over it. Um, as far as now, I, if I'm going to be involved, it's going to be in things like hold specs, things like that. Like, you know, some of the stuff that like you guys talk about the pick of the weeks where I think there's just an easy flip. If I leave them in a box for six months to sort of pay attention. Um, but other than that, I haven't talked to anyone about getting back into the grind. And I mean, if the, uh, the offers there, I'd think about it, but I'm not going to proactively pursue it. What, uh, what did you use as your arbitrage methods? Was this more like talking with like bigger dealers or was this more like just sniping from overseas sites because it was different back in the day? No, you just need to know where to look. All the information's there. It's not like other countries don't have the internet. Like, It's just uh, I when I was first starting out before I started working for deals, I, there were definitely times where I went through like 15, 20 pages of Google searches in languages I couldn't really read to find the websites that actually matter. 
but it's just about doing the homework. I mean, it's still there. It's easier now because of social media. Like you see, you know, like Haruya is everywhere. You know, Saito's marketing campaign is essentially that he's Saito and he's great. But I mean, it works and everyone knows who he is. It's the same thing. Like, you know, Heiko and Brenda Tokyo have been doing good work too. And same thing where like you can see um, magiccardmarket.eubada.com, I believe. So like they're going to be globalizing as well. So this information is going to be more and more available if you're even sort of paying attention. Yeah, it sounds like you've really been rushing into some good arbitrage deals. Um, oh my God, Jeremy. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, so it's it's uh, he lived the high life for a lot of viewers that uh, had asked questions about how to get hired at vendors and all that. I personally don't think the lifestyle is that glamorous. Uh, I guess Paul found a better job for a while, uh, not having to travel. And uh, yeah, I guess... Uh, it's time to move on. But the real question is, do you think it's time to move on from magic? Do you think that we're in a bubble or do you think that there's always going to be no demand out there for like casual cards and stuff? Cause some of the reserveless cards, like uh, deals in other places had really cheap prices at Vegas compared to other uh, vendors. But do you think people are going to just keep undercutting each other and the prices will go back down or there's just too many people with, uh, too much at stake or too much financial gain that they're looking for now with with the proliferation of BuzzFeed like MTG finance content. That was a lot of hot takes in like one sentence. Um, hold on. I try to cram as many buzzwords in as possible, man. I was we gotta to say, cater to those millennials. Jeremy doesn't like to ask one question and then wait for you to respond. He's gonna like throw a page of questions at you and be like, "So do you remember the first one I asked you? You didn't answer that one." I mean, our opinion and the and the opinion that I've always had when I was working for deals or even beforehand is it's all about cash flow and about what your situation is. So like some of the companies that have like basically have algorithms that dictate their buy prices or partially do like ABU, Troll, CK. Oh my God, it's an Edna airport. Hey, what's up guys? Rest in peace to the people listening for that audio quality. <laughs> um, but yeah. anyway, like it's, it's about where you're at money wise. So yeah, I mean, like if you don't if you don't ever think you're going to be in a position where you have to sell your holdings, reserve list stuff isn't a disaster. I don't know who you're going to sell it to, but it's probably going to exist. But if you ever think you're going to need that money quickly, you know, there's no flexibility in reserve list cards. You're just going to get wrecked because buy lists are low because the velocity is inherently going to be lower on these cards because they're so expensive now. And so at that point, I'd be more interested in like first printing foils of like cheaper casual stuff or, you know, buying into standard stuff the the first year that it's released so that you could anticipating to sell it within six to eight months or the beginning of the season after the, after the rotation, things like that, where your turnaround times, you know, at most two years, likely more likely six to eight months and you have more flexibility. But yeah, it depends where you're at in your life and what type of financial stability you have to make a better plan. Good point. Jim, is there anything that you want to talk about when it comes to this? Do you miss the glamorous life of uh, card shops or not really? Um, I didn't work there for that long, but working in an actual card shop is significantly less miserable than working like events and stuff because you don't have to travel every weekend. Like You get weekends, which is, I guess, the, the nicest part about it, but it's just like any retail job. It's not ideal in the long term. Yeah, I never worked actually. Speaking of traveling, it was miserable. Speaking of traveling, I wonder if Ed can can say anything from Korea or wherever he is right now. No, the internet is insane here. 
<laughs> this is probably the best internet I've ever had. How is uh, your travel Maybe. going? What's up? Yeah, it's a video podcast. How, what? How is your travel going? Well, I'm currently in Korea. We are on our way to the gate to fly to Detroit, followed by flying to LaGuardia. So I have like another like 22 hours of travel before I get back. Yeah, life is average. As Paul is saying, it's uh, it's a ton of fun traveling, right? Uh, it's all right. It could be worse. Other than the fact that yeah. I spewed like 4K Macau and just like I like spewed a little bit more when we were here hanging out with my friend at the casino, like not too far from the airport. So, yeah, it's been an all right weekend on vacation to Hong Kong. Don't, uh, don't follow Ed's advice, listeners. That would be a bad Korea move. You're. Seriously, I'm like halfway around the world, and you, I still have to put up with your puns. Yep. You did this to yourself. You're the one that called in. Yep. That's true. Monty thought it would be funny to call in from uh, from Korea. And I actually have like half an hour before my flight starts. So I now impart some amount of financial wisdom. What were you saying, Paul? Oh, I was saying hi to Monty. Uh, yeah. They are a band of brothers. Jim, we have a uh, credit question for this week, if you want to get into that. Sure. Our winner this week is Joshua Hall. He says, hey, Cartel Aristocrats, I've been enjoying the weekly cast. Thank you. My question this week is, what is your top source for deck lists in any given format? I normally use Star City Games, but I need to realize it's a small sample size. Do you have any other websites or sources that you use to look for deck lists to see what trends in deck building are? Um... I think I do the most looking at this kind of stuff out of the normal schmucks that are on this cast. Uh, personally, I'm a really big fan of the MTG Goldfish setup. Their website is has a lot of data that you can find. Uh, too much data, in fact, that uh, Wizards of the Coast told them to stop publishing so much data in the past. Um, it tells you the popularity by you know card by format and it has a lot of different deck lists from all, all, pretty much everywhere. It has, you know, the Magic Online deck list. It has all tournament deck lists, basically, that they can find. Um, I use that, personally, I think, the most often to find out, like, how uh, popular a card is, for example, in, in any situation. Uh, however, this is only works for, like, standard modern legacy kind of deck lists. They don't publish... Uh, Commander deck lists says there's really no events for those, so for that I go to EDH rec. Any thoughts, Paul? Um, because, due to the fact that Wizards is like clamping down on deck lists, I actually think the best part of Goldfish to use if you're going to be using it as a market device is to look at the Movers and Shakers tab on each of the respective formats because that will tell you what people are actually doing and actually buying, and they're depending on what it is in um, um, a redemption schedule like you can have a little bit of like false data but most of the time like especially right before the PT looking at the movers and shakers on magic online is the easiest way to tell what a lot of people think is going to happen because people are it's the easiest way for people to dump like uh, basically buys they buy right before the PT that like by day two have doubled up and they just ship it and so looking at that page is actually more valuable than a deck list in my experience Ed, are there any websites that you use to uh, to help look through deck lists to see what's trending? Or is it more like what your TCG player sales say? 
it's more of a TCG player sale since cards move so quickly through there. Uh, I'm, I'll more or less echo what Paul said. I think just it's more important to look at like the trends. At which that's why I'm kind of a fan of using MTG Top Eight. You can actually see like the hundred most played cards. You can sort by like creature, land, spells, etc. And, and you can also sort by color, I believe. Um, but just being able to kind of filter through that data, it's kind of a good like a good way to just kind of keep tabs on the format. Because you don't necessarily need to know like how many decks like Path Exiles played in. You just need to know that Path Exiles played in a lot of decks. Um, I think that information is like slightly more valuable. Um, so that's kind of my go-to uh, when I like when I need to get information on like deck lists and whatnot. Good point. Yeah, I don't normally check deck lists. I just look at what's selling, just like what Ed says, and go from there. Um, we don't really have like our operation is not the same size as like what Ed and Paul are doing. So we're just uh we're little little fish in the pond when it comes to that. Uh so they're like I'm not trying to capitalize on stuff that's getting played at a pro tour. It's more about just low risk specs or stuff that I think is gonna double up in the long term. So that's uh that's my thought. Sorry, one of the problems with like looking at sales is that if you're doing your job pricing, especially with like the models that like me and Ed were working under, you're out of everything anyway. And then it becomes about how much, it's about what you're buying in back in at. That's important. And that's where you look at like these market trends and what cards are moving on Magic Line as an indicator of how the paper market's going to follow. This is the difference between like paying three on something that you're going to sell at five or paying four, or, you know, matching your beating CK and things like that are reasonable decisions that you're going to have to make. And that's where like that data is really important. Anything else to add, Jim, before we go on? Uh, no, but uh, Joshua, you can send me a message on our Twitter account, on our Facebook page, or my Twitter account, or like whatever. Just tell somebody, and I will get you your store credit. If you'd like to win store credit next week, where can they do it, Jeremy? On Gathering Magic, please stop sending us questions on Twitter. If you listen to the podcast, you know you can only submit questions for Gathering Magic. So stop, uh, stop doing that. I will get back to answering questions normally. I have been super, super behind on that since I haven't really been on my computer and internet out here is spotty, except for Korea, apparently. The internet here is insane. But in Hong Kong and Macau, the internet was pretty bad. So I, like, I'm super behind. I've, we did not answer your question this week. I will get to it within the next few days, maybe on the airplane, depending on how, how ambitious I feel. Uh, we have another question. Well, we have a lot of questions. We really appreciate it. But uh, Chris Allen asks, uh, hello, Cartel Aristocrats team. Apparently we're a team. Counterfeits are getting more complex. Counterfeits are getting more complex. And when you consider the Watsi print quality inconsistency, it is going to much more difficult. Well, oh my God, this, this grammar. Uh, is it going to be much more difficult to differentiate between a real format staple and a counterfeit? Watsi has moved and changed printers enough over their 25 years that the trade secret is no longer protected and counterfeiting cards is less risky and easier than counterfeiting money. It is just a matter of time until the wrong people hit the right formula. How can and will a market adapt to a culture where counterfeits are not distinguishable from the real deal? Uh, so I'm going to start out by saying this is really, I think, only a problem for cards that are on the reserve list. Because if you're worried about things being real or not, you just, like, as far as I'm aware, which I'm not 100% sure if this is accurate or not, 
But as far as I'm aware, the foil stamp that they put on rares has not been replicated properly yet. Is that is that true? No, it's had the holographic stamp is no longer secure. Yeah, All that's right, what I then. thought. The, the latest China run is they're trying to counterfeit those. I mean, ultimately, the only cards that are going to get counterfeited are the ones that are worth a lot of money. Like, nobody's going to counterfeit a forest. Nobody's going to counterfeit a botanical sanctum. If you're really worried about running into counterfeit cards, just play standard or play EDH where people don't even care if you use proxies or not. Um, I don't I don't really have a, a strong opinion one way, one way or another. Sorry, Ed, go ahead. No, no, finish up. No, that's it. I just really don't have a strong opinion. Like, I don't think that I'm going to be worried about... Like, the cards that I would not want to buy because there could be counterfeits are cards I just don't want to buy anyway. So it doesn't matter to me. Um, I mean, my, like, I would say it's, like, very similar to, like, counterfeiting money, right? Like, for a long time, like, yeah, like, $100 bills, like, there's a lot of counterfeits. But, like, realistically, like, people, like, start switching to, like, 20s. Uh, like, in a lot of cultures, like, the second highest denominations are actually, like the ones that are counterfeit the most or like some of the lower denominations. Like if you look at the UK, they started by replacing the five pound note and they now replace the 10 pound note as opposed to starting with replacing like the 50 pound note and the 20 pound note. Uh, because like no one would ever think like, oh, this is a suspicious like five pound note. Um, so I would argue like you do have to be a little cautious. Like if you're trading from people, make sure you're taking cards out of sleeves. Most of the time, like a lot of cheap counterfeits, you can just feel right away, especially when you handle enough cards. Um, D-sleeping is kind of like my first like catch. Like once I once I uh, put all the piles down, I start de-sleeving them. And usually anything that feels odd, I'll just kind of set it aside right away to look at later. Um, I do think that there might be a point where like if the counterfeiting process is good enough or easy enough, I think it's a real concern where like a card like Chandra Torture Defiance would be like a very profitable counterfeit. Mainly because, you know, for people like Paul and I, there's no shortage of like uh, backpack grinders or other vendors who come up and say, oh, your buy price is really good on Chandra Torture Defiance. Here's like 40 copies. And for most of the time, like I would never think twice if another vendor walked up to me and there's plenty of uh, players who they bought it on a spec or something and they're willing to cash out of it. Um, like those are the types of counterfeits I would be worried about. Uh, for the most part, like if you have the money to drop on old school cards or reserve list cards, you're probably going to have the experience to be able to put them under some sort of real scrutiny, like under a loop or under a UV light or something, as opposed to just blindly buying it. Um, so again, like to kind of sum it up, like my concern is for like kind of the mid tier cards, like Fetchlands for probably are type of things that are a good, uh, a good target, mainly because, you know, like, hey, come buy my Jund deck. You know, I, I buy someone's Jund deck, it's already sleeved. And a lot of people would make the novice mistake of pricing it out and not deceiving it. And usually, like, that's how people get burned uh, when it comes to counterfeits. Any thoughts, Paul? I mean, yeah, there's going to be a real problem. Like, Ed's absolutely right in that the, the smart way to counterfeit things is just is to counterfeit fives. It's not to counterfeit hundreds. Um, so, yeah, botanical sanctum and things like that actually are a problem. Um, one of the things that we ran into for a while was when the event deck... Um, card stock and inking was way different than normal packs. And so you had this problem where you end up with like a bunch of shiny, I think the shotgun was like stomping grounds or whatever in the red green deck. And it was like, it was like close enough to some of like the fakes that were coming out where you started to have a problem. Um, as far as old school goes, I mean, if you're spending that much money on something, you should do the research. If you're worried, have someone else look who you trust, get the equipment because, you know, spending 50 bucks on stuff to spend 4K, 
this is not like that's obviously fine. Um, it's absolutely a problem with uh, stuff that specs and goes up. Like Ed said, we uh, we didn't run into it, but we definitely could have when like Ojitai spiked right after um, Dragons of Tarkir came out, and it went from like four to like forty. You know, people were handing us just fifty of them at a time or whatever. And, it was very. It would have been very easy for them to, you know, have six fakes in there, even if they just bought the set on eBay or whatever. And we wouldn't, you know, it's like they're de-sleeved, but you're going through a stack and not really paying attention. It's fairly easy to get caught there. I don't think we did, but it's entirely possible. Um, as far as, I don't really have anything else to add other than feel and getting reps, because I mean, a lot of this stuff is going to be based on feel and little inconsistencies that aren't going to come up unless you've done this a lot which isn't really a helpful answer for a lot of the viewers other than be careful. And if you're worried about something, just pass, you know, it's like, and if they get mad at you passing, well, then you definitely should have passed. And that's basically it. That's a great segue. Cause I've only ever bought one fake and it was the one time where the deal was too good to be true. And then I got my money back the next day. Once I checked it under harsher scrutiny before listing it online, but that was real embarrassing. I mean, there's also times uh, like, some pretty miserable fakes. Like, I know in Florida, for example, I've seen uh, in like some local Facebook groups, someone tried to sell a dark confidant to a store, and everything looked good except that it was a tutu. And like, that's just like pretty obvious stuff that if like you, you know what the card is and you know what it, it does, you know, you should look at it and make sure that it's not fake. Like, obviously, that was a printing error on whoever tried to fake it, but. Um, I mean, there's also, you know, there's also the problem where, like, event deck stuff is a little bit different. You have to know what cards are in it if you're going to buy them. Like, for example, a lot of people were having problems with, like, the Windswept Heath that was in the Clash Pack or whatever because it's it's a little bit more slick. But it's a real card. It's just, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you, man. Um, yeah, you, you have to, like, touch a lot of Magic cards and then you know what they feel like. And most of the, most of the problems that people were running into or most of the fakes you'll run into are like so obvious that it, you'll notice it right away. The uh, the Verdant Catacombs from the event deck is probably the closest one that feels like a fake to me from that Vampire's deck. That's the only one where like it's super close to me on if that's fake or not, just by feel before you loop it. The Stone Forgers are bad from this one right before that too. Yep, Ink Moth Nexus really also suffers the same problems. Oh yeah, those Ink Moths yeah. are disgusting. Same with the Green Sentinels. That deck is just like, it's gross to touch. So if you're uh, buying any of those cards, guys, uh, be careful. Uh, let's just keep going down the comment chain since Ed was too lazy to uh, to answer all the questions while he was overseas. We're just going to try to finish them all up right now. Uh, Grant Kleppinger asks, at what I'm point... I'm so mad at you. He asks, at what point will each of you stop doing MTG Finance? Uh, I don't know if I ever stop playing Magic, which... I don't, I don't do like the thing that I used to do, which was play a lot of Magic every single Friday, sometimes Saturday and Sunday. Like now, I'm in the place where I'm like, I'm going to build an EDH deck, and I'm going to play it like one day a week, maybe for a couple of hours with some friends. That's pretty much the amount of Magic that I play right now. Um, I still enjoy watching it, so I don't know. I don't know if I'll ever stop. I eventually will, but like. Let's be realistic. Nobody actually ever quits Magic forever. They just go on hiatus. So I'm sure when I end up stopping, it'll be for a couple of years and then I'll come back just like the last time I did it.
this is a fun one because Paul and I were actually talking a little bit about it last week. Um, I'm honestly not sure. Um, I, I don't know like exactly what the situation falls in, but I'm not actively looking to leave. Um, if I left my company, I would probably be at odds. Like I imagine Paul kind of mirrors the Senate. Like he would probably be, I could go back into MTG finance. I could move on. Um, I don't necessarily know if I want to move on right now. I kind of enjoy this lifestyle. Uh, like it's, it's fine. Like, it, is it like the most glamorous job? No, of course not. Like, does it have like the health benefits or like whatever else, like 401k? No, of course not. Right. Like I, I, I like could cover myself like for, for uh, through other means. So it doesn't really bother me as much, but like, again, um, do I suggest people actively try to get into it? Probably not. Am I saying like, this is the worst thing ever I want out? Not really. Um, it's probably happy ground. I'll probably try and continue this for as long as I can. I think I, like, I will definitely ride out all of next year, kind of see how that goes. Um, and see kind of the direction that Channel Fireball takes these events. There's a lot of other things. Like, I've, like, I've been doing more and more Pokemon lately. I've definitely missed, uh, like, Grand Prix for that. Um, who knows at this point? Like, it, it's kind of up in the air. I, I'm kind of on the YOLO plan. Just kind of play it, like, day by day, month by month. And we'll see kind of how it turns out. If you're making so much money, Ed, why can't you afford better headphones? Uh, these are the ones I have in my bag. Uh, I have my Bose headphones, but those are kind of dying. So, and I need those for the plane to sleep. Yeah. Paul, you sort of answered this. Anything you want to elaborate on here? I mean, it's the same thing where it's all about where you are in your life and what you want to do. So, like, I know that DJ just started doing more um, vendor stuff and working behind booths. And, you know, he's young. You know, he's, I think he's like seven or eight years younger than me. He's like, still full of all that joyous energy that I lied to myself that I had when I was his age. So yeah, man, it's just about what you want to do and what makes you feel good. Ed, I think likes this a little bit better than I did. He wants to do it more. It's nothing terrible. I mean, that to be said, if you have good knowledge and it's sort of a free money that you can go on the side by just picking up some specs when you pay attention to it and then flipping them a year later, like, I don't think that's ever going to stop unless the game dies. But I mean, going in full hog is more about like a commitment to a lifestyle because you don't get to have like the weekends like Jim meant or like planning vacations and things like that gets weird and this stuff that a lot of people take for granted. So it's all it's just plus or minus like anything else. Also, the Pokemon margins are gross. That you completely miss GPs for those. I heard that Ogre destroyed the Pokemon bulk market though. So that was a super interesting story to hear at Eternal Weekend. That's a little bit more complicated, but this is a magic podcast. We can talk about that later. I apparently started it by hooking him up with that distributor, so I'm sorry to all the guys that got burned in Pokemon, because apparently he moved like over a million bulk Pokemon cards in like the first month that I, I helped him with that hookup. Um, even that much, man. Yeah, I know, but that's I was just talking with a lot of people to turn a weekend, and it was super interesting to hear like what happened to Pokemon bulk. Um... I personally cannot wait to get out of MTG Finance as soon as school's over. Like, yeah, I, I can't wait, man. Um, next question. Uh, Luke McCain asks, I seem to hear all of the bad news about, MTG about how MTG Finance has changed or is changing. What is changing for the better? What changes in the past couple of years have made things better? Good question because we've all been in the the uh, MTG world for a couple years at least. I mean, it depends on what your definition of better and who you're talking about it being better for. I mean, it's better for the players than it's ever been, probably. 
Uh, cards are pretty inexpensive. They're easy to come by. Um, you know, it's easy to buy and sell your own stuff without too much trouble. Like, it's probably not been any better for the player than it could have been. Uh, is it me? Holy shit, I got loud. Um, I'm going to answer this real quick. I actually need to, like, probably run after this. Um, the reason why, like, there's a lot of opportunities that are, like, people are just no longer available to people. Um, like, a few years ago, like, back when Paul and I were doing this, like, really hard, uh, especially when he was on the GP circuit, like, there were a lot of things that make, made it super lucrative back then. Obviously, there weren't all the reprints. That wasn't really anything to contend with. Modern was just on nothing, like, but the up and up. Like, like literally every week, like, a new staple was, uh, was just being bought out or spiking in price. Uh, the world market was very different. I think there was a time when, like, the yen was down to, like, 80 to 85 on the dollar. Um, the euro was just way out of whack compared to what it was now. Uh, there was just much less knowledge around. There weren't as many people traveling internationally between, uh, between Japan, Southeast Asia, America, and Europe. Um, so the arbitrage opportunities were much more appealing. Uh, the knowledge was also not quite as readily available. Like, MTG stocks didn't exist back then. Uh, MTG price, there weren't as many finance writers. Um, so it, like, it was much harder to get information, and generally information stayed secret for much longer as well. Um, whereas now, like, you know, there's no shortage of finance podcasts. There's no shortage of people who write about this. There's no shortage of places to get data from. Um, so all of those together, uh, I like it's dramatically changed the landscape, especially for vendors. Uh, we're, we've paid, we're, we're doing nothing but paying more and more for Grand Prix every year. Uh, the margins are getting tighter. It's definitely harder for us, but obviously, like, this is probably better for Magic in the long term. Like, Magic doesn't need like Arcbound Ravagers to be $50 because they don't exist. Um, it gives people the opportunity to actually turn over more cards. People are buying more decks because of it. Um, a few years ago, like owning a modern deck was kind of a big deal, especially if you didn't get into it early, it was hard to buy your way up. Now it's very realistic with all the Modern Masters reprints for people to own like two to three decks or own the staples where they can easily change. Like, oh, I just need to take out like a small handful of cards and I more or less have a new deck type thing. Um, Sanders kind of the same way. People can turn through decks mainly because the staples have moved away from the mythic rarity. Um, so, uh, so like rares, like the rare lands, they used to be much, much higher than they are now. Uh, probably around Innistrad, the original Innistrad, that was kind of the time when we didn't really see expensive lands anymore, but all the price was concentrated in mythics, and now it's more or less kind of shifted over with the... Um, introduction of masterpieces a little while ago like that was definitely a positive change for the player i would say it definitely made standard very affordable um you can easily switch between like like mono red like team or energy blue black control like there aren't even though there aren't that many overlapping pieces most of those staples will probably hold their price for their lifespan and standard and most of them again aren't that expensive to begin with like chandra torture defines the scarab god are kind of the outliers in terms of actual price but otherwise like everything else, it's like less than ten dollars. Like botanical sanctum is kind of an outlier as well. But if you look at things like concealed courtyard, like most of those lands can be bought for five dollars or less. Well, thanks for coming on, Ed. Go make your flight. We appreciate the uh, the phone in from Korea, and uh, I hope you uh, have fun on however long that is, like thirteen or fourteen hours. Yep. Uh, if you don't follow me at Edwin thirteen on Twitter. I'll be in Syracuse this weekend uh, hosting the Kerwin's Game Store Regionals um, up in New York. So come by and say hi. I'll be running the booth there. 
I'll be in Tennessee Sunday morning for a trade show with Southern Hobby. And then uh, I think it's Travis's wedding the weekend after that. Yeah. And then I'll be in Grand Prix Portland. So people in Grand Prix Portland, come, come by and say hi. Thanks for listening, guys. Uh, enjoy the rest of the cast. And um, so anyone else want to talk about how MTG Finance has changed? I mean, just to kind of piggyback off of Ed, like, it's just, I mean, the information's more available. So basically what's happened is, is that if you're doing research, you just basically need less tabs open on Chrome. That's basically what's happened. Um, it's definitely good for the players. It's uh, interesting to see when uh, markets disagree. And one of the, one of the only real um, opportunities now is the lag time between market adjustments between different markets. Um, we saw that with Scare of God this weekend, so I'm kind of curious to see who's right. But um, other than that, yeah, I mean, stuff's just gotten easier. It's better for the players. It's worse for the businesses. But, I mean, that's what globalization is going to do, and that's the nature of the beast. So it's better in the long run, and it's just going to create some more, I guess, survival of the fittest. What happened this weekend with Scare of Hey, there we go. Got oh, a point out of him. What are I you was saying, Jim? Right. I, was, I was asking what happened with the Scare of God this weekend that I was not aware of. Whatever changes happened. So Channel was paying forty at GP Phoenix, but Saito dropped his sale price to five thousand yen, and um, those prices are very, very close. So one of them is right, and one of them is wrong. <laughs> well, it's interesting that uh, Scarab Gods are selling for like thirty-five on TCG now. Like, obviously, Channel can ask more, but the price it seems is starting to come down. Uh, for those that are listening at home, uh, five thousand Japanese yen is about forty-four dollars. So yes, that is quite low. That is quite close. Anything else that you want to talk about when it comes to the 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 past and future of MTG Finance, Paul? Um, I think that specking is a little bit scarier. Um, the the Thoughtseize reprint really put a lot of the things that I thought were unspoken rules on, made me doubt them more because I didn't think that it made me doubt things, you know, like KTK fetches. I mean, obviously there's a counterfeit possibility that you have to be afraid of, but I felt that we probably had another year or two at least before KTK fetches could possibly get hit. But going from Theros to Iconic Masters with the better picture is a blowout that I did not really anticipate happening. Um, because obviously we saw when they double tap Cyclonic Rift, and obviously it's recovered a bunch. You know those things are still are now back to being about worth a little bit less, like twenty percent less than where they were. But there's three printing instead of one, and it's you know they still sell fine. And the card has really been hit, but I have more concerns about some of my holds than I would have otherwise, and it makes me want to kind of cling to um, foil casual cards more, because I think the sense of urgency for them to reprint them is much less. And so I think they're a safer hold if you need to hold them for more than a year. It's a really good point. Yeah, I know a lot of people thought these types of reprints were over, but uh, it's going to be interesting to see uh, how far we go with uh, some of these reprints. Uh, it's not very obvious to see what exactly is going to be hit here. Um, you know, if you stress the pun, it doesn't make it better. It makes it worse. So when you kind of said... You could have said fairly, and you could have left it at that, but you had to say fairy and go like up an extra octave. That makes you the worst kind of person. Yeah, that's the plan. Um, I personally am okay. Like, 
as Paul and Ed have said, the name of the game is flipping things. Like, yeah, you can spec on stuff, but uh, people are starting to even lower bulk rare pricing on like down to eight cents instead of dimes, which like was also another unspoken rule it felt like for the secondary market. Um, you can still get 10 cents at Grand Prix from some vendors, but it's it's going to be interesting to see what happens to bulk next year because they're just putting out so many standard cards uh, into that. the market. Sorry. Um, it's also like the a lot of the outs for bulk got bad. The out on Amazon got worse. The outs in South America got worse. And so combined with the fact that people, there's like businesses where their entire model is they just break standard product over and over and over again. You know, you see like Card Rush on TCG load like 50 or 100 of stuff on a Tuesday. It's like, it's because they broke it all. Um, and that's just flooding the market with stuff that's just not really sellable. So, I mean, I think we're probably going to get to five cents pretty soon just because the opportunity cost of the money that's probably going to sit there for a long time. Because you have to, if you have to wait to sell the bulk at Christmas, then like, and you're buying bulk rares in February, like, that you have to really be making money to justify having it sit like that. Obviously, some stuff can go up, especially with standard, but I think the rates are going to go down even more. I don't think they're done yet. Yeah, it's definitely interesting to uh, note when you're buying bulk. I know Mythics got hit, what, this year was finally when people stopped paying like 35 cents on bulk Mythics and it went down. I think Troll and Toad was higher at one point. I, I think Paul was more in the industry at that point than I was. I mean, yeah, but I it's 15 for some of them just because they're just unmovable and you can't right. just fill the same bulk lots with 30 or one of them. Yeah. So that's something to keep in mind, Jim. Well, part of the other reason I think that bulk rares in general have gone down is just because the amount of information available to people to like pick them so that you don't accidentally send them any that are worth like a real amount of money. Like they're actually all 100% unplayable bulk rares is definitely part of the reason why I think that the rate has just gone down. Like nobody is accidentally sending, you know, 50 cent or a dollar cards in, you know, 10 cent bulkers that just, or even if it does happen is so rare. It happens more than you think, especially at Grand Prix when people like bring binders that they haven't touched in years. Um, I've seen that a lot lately. Uh, it's just not as obvious to people that are on Craigslist where everyone's like just hitting each other over and over again. Finance is super interesting. Like, there's a hundred thousand people that are greater full monkeys versus like the thousand people that are just cardboard monkeys. And like, Paul is no longer, or at least for the time being, a professional cardboard monkey, but like the hundred thousand people that are the greater fool monkeys and they're just like following people's advice blindly just because they have stacks of booster boxes. But, oh wait, shit, I have booster boxes behind me. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway. This but all yours are bad. I see some yeah, pretty yeah, bad Yeah, I know, that's there. the point. <laughs> they're that's they're the point. exceptionally bad. Is there, I think I see Journey into Nyx, Geek, or Dragon's Nyx. Maze. Yeah. Um, Born of the Gods. Born of the Gods. Is one of those and, cards uh, here? M15. You got M15 and you have uh, M14 and some other stuff below that. What's the green one? Uh, Theros. Oh, okay. Oh, so it's Theros block. And then what's the other red one that's not Born of the Gods? Uh, Konzatark here. I was right. Man, I know too much about this shit. Six of those seven booster boxes are worth about $300 total. All right, cool. I'm quite aware. I got them for basically nothing. Um... 
but there's like just people that do clickbait videos where like they just show off like how many cards they have or like look at my binder and then people just blindly follow that like we hope that by bringing pro- quote-unquote professional cardboard monkeys on this podcast and like having differing opinions on different formats and different methods that uh you guys at least listen to us even if like you you should learn from us i guess like you shouldn't take everything we say to be the gospel truth but it we try to just help you guys out with that um instead of just like hey i'm creepy jim and i'm just gonna talk rant about this set so that it spikes or something that's, no, I'm I'm normal, Jim, and I'm just going to tell you that Sunbird's invocation is the truth, and then it is going to be the truth. Yeah, you hit that out of the park, and speaking of hitting specs out of the park, it's probably time to move into pick of the week. Where yeah, we become, uh, I mean, you got to come up with something. Uh, Paul, are you ready for this? You you got a pick of the week prep for us, or are you just uh, one with nothing here? No, I, I got something. Um, oh, man, you... Why, Jim? What what is this shit for? No, because he made a one with nothing pun, and you didn't even notice. No, I just you just have to go deaf sometimes, man. Um, I like Modern Masters three Snapcaster Mage, both in foil and non-foil. Um, I think that the market's probably going to see like normally the market has about a ten percent dip in no, late November, early December anyway, just because people aren't spending as much because they're buying Christmas presents or what have you. And because we see Iconic Masters releasing very soon, I think that dip's going to be even harder. And I think that there was a time in 2015 where Star City was convinced that Snapcaster Major was a $100 card. Um, it was right before GP Jersey. It was during GP Atlantic City, right before Vegas 2. And they obviously got burned because of the reprint, and the market didn't really take it. But we have a different art, and the foils are about 70 bucks on the on eBay on the Modern Masters 3 compared to 100 or 110 on Innistrad. And all of that spike hype that made all the Bloodbraid Elf foils like quadruple billion whatever times in price that is half nonsense or whatever because of that post about possibly unbanning things after the Modern Pro Tour. I think it's more like way more likely we get an unbanning that's better for blue decks than we do, you know, just basic Bloodbraid Elf. And the other problem is, is that if you buy something like Bloodbraid Elf, Bloodbraid Elf and it's not unbanned, you're wrecked. Whereas Snapcaster Mage is going to inherently go up anyway just because the supply is going to get eaten up by the population. And I think that right now TCG is about 50, eBay is like 46, high buys like 38, Channel was 40 at a Phoenix. But I think you're going to be able to get them in the low to mid 40s. And I think it's very easy for the card to be 60, 70 bucks in eight months without really trying. Nice. Jim? So, uh, my pick this week, I'm going to ca- put a caveat that, like, I don't want you to, I'm not saying to buy them today. However, in the near future, the new box set, uh, Explorers of Ixalan, will come out, and it includes at least one Vanquishers banner. Uh, this card is pretty cheap right now, and it could get cheaper, and especially if you basically just play standard and you're like, trading with people at your LGS. This is the kind of card that, like, I don't think people really want unless they are super casual or, like, only play tribal EDH decks. But it's the kind of card that's going to be, like, you know, every single artifact before that, like, Coat of Arms and Dwarf Destinies and just crap like that. It's, like, worth infinite dollars, and people don't understand why if they only play competitive formats. So uh, Vanquishers Banner is a card that I'm going to be actively looking out for, seeing when it goes to its lowest, and then just picking up a whole huge stack of them because 
Um, a, I think it's just going to pay for itself in a couple of years. Like whenever they start releasing more tribal commanders, which you know could even just be in the next set, um, people are going to want them for sure. It's just like it, it's it's already obvious to me that tribal cards that draw cards are quite good because you're already playing a bunch of dudes that are going to die anyway. That's why the uh, the blue card from the commander set, the uh, what is that card called? Kindred something. Discovery. Yeah, Kindred Discovery is like the way it was way more expensive than the other ones, despite most of the blue tribes not being quite good. Uh, drawing cards in tribal deck is just pretty much the thing that you always want to be doing. So I think this card is going to be probably sub a dollar at some point in time and can easily be a four or five dollar card. And this is the kind of card that you can just like throw in a box and leave in your closet for a couple of years and not worry about it. Um, after this time it gets reprinted, I don't think it's going to necessarily get a ton of reprints in the future. Um, but, you know, Wizards of the Coast could do whatever they want, so you could easily get burned on this, but it'll always be worth something. Um, to piggyback on Jim's point, I really like a lot of the singles in that Explorer's uh, game or whatever it is, Fake Settlers Catan, um, because what's going to happen is distributors going to get stuck on a lot of these, and they're going to try to sell them to stores cheap, and stores are going to have to break them for the singles, and you're going to see things where people all of a sudden have like 20 time warps in stock, and that's not usually what happens. And if people are rushing to the bottom just trying to get the money out because they want to be able to buy stuff during Christmas, um, you're going to have some opportunities to buy cheap on real quantities of things like Beacon Immortality, you know, Time Warp, stuff like that. And they're just going to go back up in a year, and it's going to be easy. You might have just stolen my pick. Oh, were you going to pick that with, with that oh, addendum? Man. I mean, oh. there's, like, there's like a lot of cards that could be really good in that. Like, we could even see Hostage Taker... Like, they have to repair in a bunch of cards that are in standard because two of the decks are pirates and, and dinosaurs. <laughs> they just don't exist outside of this one set, basically. So we're probably going to see a bunch of, like, weird standard cards get reprinted, too. Yeah, I'm pretty sorry that uh, they're going to reprint some of the dinosaurs there. Um, well, since Paul stole my carefully research pick, uh, there's just a couple things I want people to... There's two cards I want people to know about price-wise, and then there's one that I'll call. Uh, the first one is the three mana Thalia from Eldric Moon. Uh, it's like gone down to almost bulk at this point, and this is something that's seeing play. Um, like it's ninety nine cents on the low, and like you can just literally buy the like trade into these super easily, um, or like buy them at a quarter and then sit on them, wait for them to go up to like three or four dollars, and then just like yeah, it was printed as a buy a box promo, but it's whatever. Um, the other one I like is uh, Gisela the Broken Blade. Uh, this build your own Bane Slayer has not fallen in price at all because of casual demand. Uh, we sell a ton of these. I think it's like still seven dollars mid. Uh, it's just like not moving at all. Um, and then the third one to keep an eye out for uh, is Collective Brutality. This is a card that's very dependent on the modern meta, which is a format that shouldn't exist. But uh, that one also has not fallen much and does have a lot of uh, of competitive demand. Uh, just like Tarmogoyf, though, the meta could change to where Dredge isn't good. And the card will fall in price. But these are three cards from a lowly open set that I really like uh, going into next year. These just all seem like free money in a year again. And that's generally how I like to call my picks. If you want to flame me, I'll give you three since I was going to pick Time Warp this week. I mean, you could have picked Time Warp. There was nothing stopping you but you.
for what but it's I worth. What? I, actually, I actually like the Thalia pick a lot. I think that I think it is absolutely free money. Thank you. Look at that, guys. I got a I got a bonus point after getting roasted for my boxes that are clearly packed with value. Well, uh, they are not clearly packed with value. If they be, if they were packed with value, you would have opened them already. It was a yeah. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to open up that uh, gate crash box because I know there's going to be some grueling puns in there. Or no polls, no. <laughs> All right, well we'll end it there. Um, where can people find you guys? As I failed the last pun of the night. Why did you fail that one? Gruel was one of the gate crash guilds. I was going to say grueling, uh, like polls, but I said grueling puns. Oh, okay. Yeah. Jim, where can people find you? Probably buried at the bottom of the ocean after this cast. Uh, or on Twitter at PHROST underscore uh, on Quiet Speculation occasionally and on Gathering Magic every other week usually. I don't know. I've been like lazy and busy, so I haven't written as much. Paul? Um, I'm on Twitter at... Oh yeah, my handle is P-R-F-E-U-B-L. Um, I'm generally going to respond if you message me on something like that. Um, I'm almost assuredly not going to respond if you figure out a way to message me anywhere else, so just go there. And yeah. He likes it when you notice him. My tears, they're so strong. I'm uh, Jeremy. You can find me in the great state of Missouri. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Missouri MTG. And yeah, you can follow our podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, GatheringMagic.com, or there's one more, but I can't remember it for some reason. Oh, YouTube, right. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at cartel underscore fa- uh, finance. You can follow us on Twitter at cartel aristocrats. Uh, you can follow Ed pretty much everywhere because he's all over the world. If you guys want to hear more of Paul, he will also be on Brainstorm Brewery this week. Uh, so I'm sure they're going to have a good conversation if you guys listen to that podcast. Thanks for listening this week, guys. We'll be back next week with a full uh, amount of people. And as always, we thank you for listening. Have a good one and a happy Halloween. Bye.